So this morning we're going to see a new group of individuals being introduced, but just to bring everyone up to speed on what's been unfolding in this scenario that has begun um, back at the point of the end of chapter 19 where Jesus cleanses the temple. Then we move into chapter 20 where this dialogue starts to ensue between Jesus and the religious leaders or, or those in religious power Um, beginning in chapter 20. If you just look back over chapter 20, just to kind of give you the scenario of how they're bringing up these multiple items to Jesus, and so far they're 0 for 2 in their rivalry to him. Um, But but enter in a new group is going to get a crack at it this morning. But if you look at the top of chapter 22, it was a question you remember over authority. They they first spoke to him about, uh, tell us, you see there in verse 2, Tell us about what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority to be teaching and preaching at the temple, to be speaking a gospel here in the temple complex. Who gave you the authority, right? The question is over credentials. You you don't have anything tied to the temple complex that authorizes you to be doing and saying what you're doing and what you're saying. Of course, they thought this was a great way to get at him because from their perspective, They had authority to be teaching. They had authority to be instructing people. And it was tied to, their authority is tied to the temple complex. You are here at the temple, and you have no authority at the temple complex. Therefore, you need to leave. You see, so they're deriving authority from official credentialing at the temple. He lacked it. He needs to leave. This then put them, and what they thought was going to be a good way to go about it, put them in a conundrum about John the Baptist. So Jesus says, I'll tell you, fine, all right, we'll go down this pathway with you. I will tell you about the authority from where I get such authority on what I do speak. And first of all, you tell me about John the Baptist. Was he sent, was his baptism from men and simply made up, or was it from heaven? You tell me. And, of course, at the end, they walk away. They get together, they talk, they come back, they present a non-answer. We're just going to withhold. We're sensing the temperature in the room beginning to slowly but surely change, and we're not going to say about the authority. Now, at this point, there's a basic revelation to the crowds that Jesus is getting the upper hand. These who have authority here are the ones who should be shutting him down if they can. So weighing in the balance at the temple is, yeah, which way are the scales going to tip? So far, they're tipping in the favor of Jesus. They don't really want to commit to an answer. So then you think, okay, all is well. They're going to kind of be embarrassed a little bit. There's a little bit of humiliation going on here publicly on those who are otherwise very strong politically and religiously and publicly speaking. A little bit of embarrassment. He casts some shade on them, but they'll recover and we'll kind of move on. But then... He doesn't leave it at that, right? Because it is all going down. We're moving toward Friday. So in other words, he moves on and says, you know, let's take the dial and crank it up. Turn the temperature up even hotter. He knows where this is ending. So fine, let's go there. So they're a little bit, they have some shade cast on them. There's a little bit of a public embarrassment there because they're noncommittal on an answer. He then turns to the crowd, you recall, and he begins to tell an allegory. Because I'm going to take your embarrassment and I'm going to shame you publicly in front of everyone. 
to continue to move the crowd in the right direction. And the right direction is away from you. So he tells this allegory. I'm going to tell you a story about a man who owned a, a vineyard. And then, of course, that group begins to steam. Because as we get, if you look in the text just over in verse 19 of what we covered last week, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the end of the allegory. Right? There's the crowd. Here they are at the temple complex. They're being embarrassed. He continues to speak. It's not enough to put them in a weird place where they can't really answer. He's now humiliating us. So they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Someone shut him up, is what they're thinking. Why? Why are they so angry? Verse 19, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew exactly what he was getting at. And they saw the scales tilting away from their favor. So you remember, the frustration then led to a second scenario. Okay, right, so he got us in round one. But we have another way to get at him. We just need to triangulate the relationship. Instead of him and us, let's add in the Romans. That's the way we can get rid of him. So we'll bring in the Roman power. We know they won't tolerate him. So let's create a tension in a three-way relationship. Us, and then Jesus, and the Romans, and then they'll swoop him, they'll crush him, and all the people will be back in our hands. We'll pick up the pieces and help everybody move on. So then with that scheme, they come in, they seek to trip Jesus up, but you realize, right, as we noticed last week, just briefly, verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. Again, um, he does not need outside affirmation of what's in a man's heart. He knows what's in every man and woman's, every individual's heart. So then he got them on a poor theological understanding of the idea of the image of God. So now he's embarrassing them over their, their shallow theological thinking. He's got them. Well, hey, who are you going to pay taxes to? Hmm? Right? He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to reveal to you not really a tick for tack over taxes. We can get to that. But you tell me, what do you think about imagery? What do you think about ownership? What do you think about the stamp of the image of God upon the likeness of men? You see, they're trying to, to, to work tricky sentences and trying to spin and create little entrapments by technicalities and perceived inconsistencies. But he's just proving to them two things. They're really bad readers of Scripture, and they're really bad theologians. Those kind of go hand in hand. Poor reading, giving way, poor theological understanding and comprehension. No, no, who's supposed to pay taxes? You tell me a theology of the image of God in men and women. Has God stamped his likeness on all men? Yes. So thereby he owns the rights to all men and all women. They bear his likeness. They were created to bring him glory and to spread his image across the face of the earth. It's a bigger discussion than taxes, and now they're embarrassed yet again. So they're now over two. Thought they had him on authority, missed. Thought they could go in, spy, pretend to be sincere, and then trap him against the Romans on taxes. Miss. 
So now we're at the point in this situation where there's like a subset, right? So you had the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. These are the three people we've been looking at primarily in chapter 20 of who's bringing all of the contested conversation to Jesus. A subset out of those chief priests along with that group would be this group that's now entering this morning as the final kind of the next group to be the contenders against Jesus. And you see it there in the text of what Luke tells us. It's the Sadducees showing up. So, so they're, they're not totally a separate group out of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, but they're not the same thing as chief priests, scribes, and elders. It's like a subset. Like you could be both, a Sadducee and a chief priest, like belonging to the priestly society and be a Sadducee at the same time. The distinction among those, among that group who is the Sadducee, as you see there in the text, Luke just wants to make sure we're clear on the details of who they are. Look in verse 27, and there came to him, Right, So now we're over to, and we're going to strike for number three, um, because they think they have a way to really embarrass the Lord. Verse 27, there came to him now some Sadducees. And again, in case you gloss that, and you're like, okay, there's another group, they're on the ground here, keep moving. And they asked him, wait, no, 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 Luke says, whoa, slow down. You remember, right? Uh, uh, what's their distinctive mark? They deny the resurrection. Now, even prior to the first century, um, and you would know this very easily, but there's very, very few groups in history that didn't believe in life after death. Very few. There's all kinds of myth, all kinds of story about life after death. Now, it might not be, oh, we have a concept of heaven and hell. That was our idea of life after death. You might not consistently see that in every, every different type of religious um, context, but there was very few who ultimately just like, there is no life after death. But, um, so it's a distinctive quality of this school of thought of the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection. Um, that there just was not going to be uh, life after death. Um, another thing to note about them, and you'll see it there, a part of the reason why they think there is no doctrine of the resurrection. And you see it in verse 28. Right where he says, and, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. These are the two distinct pieces of the Sadducees. On the one hand, there's a denial of the doctrine of the resurrection. The reason, kind of, why there's that sense of a lack of a doctrine of the resurrection is because of this reading of Moses. So, in other words, they really strictly held to, let's say, Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? And in this section, in the reading of Scripture, where are you getting a doctrine of resurrection? That would be the argument that they're putting forward here. Like, how are you going to get there? Now, the Pharisees would say, there's much more literature plus rabbinical teachings. There's clearly going to be a resurrected state. There's clearly going to be a resurrection. These guys are saying, no, 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 we're not adhering to all of the additional rabbinical teachings. What we're trying to pin you down on is Moses, the book of the law. So you are adding a doctrine of resurrection state, a doctrine of life after death, a doctrine where one rises and, and has a body and goes on uh, in, in another dimension. You're adding that. So these are the two pieces. Now, this group comes up and is thinking, for sure, we need to change the tone of the conversation. So far, the issue of authority, forget about it. You got burned, publicly humiliated. The other issue on taxes, you got owned. Forget about it. 
what we need to do is stop trying to trick him up in some sort of twist of phrase. Let's just talk theological with him and enter in the topic of the resurrection. So you see, they're coming at him thinking, this type of argument against him is not working. He's too sharp for that. But I'll tell you what is embarrassing is the resurrection. So let's move the tone of the conversation from tick for tack. Let's make it broader, scenario-based, about the idea of the resurrection. It'll publicly embarrass him. Because we're so confident there is no doctrine of the resurrection. So then you figure, well, we're over two. Send out the Sadducees. See if they can bring him down with this topic of the resurrection. So that's where the text is going to pick up. They want to make it a laughing stock. So jump in with me then, in the, in, 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 with that in mind, the, the, listen to the tone of the passage as you're reading it. It's a mockery. It's to make him look really foolish. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, so far, fair enough. Verse 29. Now, you know, you can hear him kind of like doing this, like, you know, they're getting ready to tell their story, and they're looking over, and they're like, right, right. Now, there were seven brothers. This is true. He's going to look a fool. We've got him on the idea of resurrection. There were seven brothers. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. You can hear their sneering. (laughs) Got him, right? Sneer, snicker. In the resurrection... Whose wife will the woman be? For, don't forget, the seven had her as wife. So you see, the entire tone and the entire strategy of the effort of the Sadducees is to mockingly point out a false doctrine of the resurrection and bring Jesus to humiliation. There's two things at work here that I want you to note about this entire scenario. What he's going to do, if you have it kind of marked in your, in your paragraphs, perhaps you have it broken down this way, but in verse 27 through 33 is kind of like this false scenario, right? He, he strips down the scenario in 34 through 36, and then he blasts everybody there on bad exegesis from 37 all the way to 47. So what you have here is a takedown of a 
false scenario that this man is presenting that's supposed to really undo the doctrine of resurrection. He's going to meet them on the grounds of a false scenario. Okay, fine. Let's enter into it. I'll play along. You gave me the story. Let me follow up with you. Then after that, I'm going to send you around, kick you on your way out the door. Bad exegesis from your own texts. You can't read well. And then another person sneers along. is like, hey, you treated them really good. And he's like, hey, I'm after you next. You're going to see this in the passage. What is the false scenario? Think about it this way. There is a doctrine that's taught in the law, just like he said. Hey, teacher, Moses taught us about bearing children for our brothers. It's true, right? Yeah, absolutely. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and following. I don't have time to go there, obviously. But if you go there, you're essentially going to see exactly this idea. That if a man, has a, if a man dies and he didn't have a son, the, kin, the kinfolk, the family, was to marry that woman and have a son, hopefully, with this woman in order that the man's name might be preserved in Israel. It's called Leverite marriage. First century historian Josephus writes this. It seems to still have been in practice. So, so he was, um, Josephus, we've used him like three or four times now in the scope of handling some of this more Holy Week historical elements because he's a first century historian, Jewish historian. He, he was born somewhere in the late 30s. So you're talking somewhere shortly after the death of our Lord. He was on the ground like in his older time somewhere in the late 40s, right? Somewhere in there in the first century. So, so this Leverite concept of marriage was still at work among the uh, Israelites. He, he writes this. This procedure, this is Josephus for our sake. This procedure, that is Leverite marriage, where a man dies, doesn't have a son, and then uh, a, a brother marries the wife, has a son, in order that the inheritance that the man who died goes to the son and the name is perpetuated in Israel and isn't snuffed out. Josephus writes, this procedure will be for the benefit for the public because thereby families will not fail. This is what Moses taught us. If he dies, don't let the family in Israel die. Don't let it fail. Somebody, marry her, that is a brother, marry her, rise up a son and give the inheritance to the son that the name might continue among the people of God. He continues, thereby families will not fail and the estate will continue among his kindred. So left, right marriage. This is taught where? In the law of God. Do you see the move? He's either at this point, and you'll see it in the next point, he's either at this point going to be on the side of the law, honoring left, right marriage, or he's going to be on the side of the doctrine of resurrection that will confuse and upend the entire concept of Leverite law, Leverite marriage. So they got him on this scenario of Leverite marriage. And it's noteworthy. Isn't it interesting? The woman is, a, 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 you know, I don't know what she's doing to them, but all seven of them die. Right? I mean, just think of the scenario. No one wanted to marry her next. But then finally she dies. But the question is resurrection. Then who does she belong to? Because wait a minute, you're not going to say, well, no, 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 that doesn't matter. We shouldn't do Leverite marriage because of the resurrection. No, 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 no. God's law says Leverite marriage. So see, 
how ridiculous does resurrection sound? We would have a whole mess in our hands. Or maybe you just don't believe in God's law because you'd rather believe in resurrection. The second piece they think they nailed him on, on this idea of biblical equation of leverite marriage on the one hand, and the second piece is the idea of marital covenant. Right? What would a woman be if that was that she was being married to seven different men all simultaneously? That would be adulterous. So the other foot has dropped. The painted picture of the of the scenario is you either uphold the law of God on the grounds of Leverite marriage in this age that makes sense in this age. And you also say that adultery is wrong. Or you believe in the resurrection. Where if we entered into resurrection, both of these things would occur. A woman would be married to seven different men. To whom does she rightly belong? How does she uphold a marital covenant when she's married to seven different men? The whole idea of resurrection is foolish because it's contrary even to God's law. They have him. See, you needed to move away from this ticky-tack little thing and move into the realm of thought, theology. You guys were too myopic in your view. Think theologically broader. We've got him. The resurrection is where he's weak. But look at how Jesus responds. Again, he doesn't say, I'm not even going to answer that. That's a ridiculous question. He's like, fine, I'm going to come into your scenario. I'm going to strip you bare. And I'm going to show how you just can't read the Bible very well either. Verse 34, uh, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Fair enough. Verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. There are two main factors that shut the scenario down immediately and make it so hypothetical it's impossible. Number one is, you see that in verse 34, who's marrying? The people who belong to this age. In what age do you marry? This age. But there are two ages. There's this age, and there's an age to come. You see, they thought if there was a resurrection, you'd simply be resurrected, and you'd go right back to the life that you had before you died for whatever reason. If there is a resurrection, it's so silly, isn't it? Like, oh, she was married to seven people. Ha, 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 Jesus, you're a clown. The resurrection is all made up. This is crazy. Look, okay, so like when you come out of the ground and you go right back to your home... And she goes with you, or does she go with him, 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 or him? This is, he's saying, no, no, your assumption that resurrected life is the exact same life of this age is the wrong assumption. There are two ages. 
and the experience of this age will come to an end. And every man and every woman will enter into the age that is to come. And there is a different experience in the age that is to come than in the age that is here and passing away. Your thoughts about the age are all wrong. There's not a flat-lined age. There are two of them. There's this age. And in the resurrection, the age that is to come. So the whole idea that there's going to be a one woman with seven men who all come right back to earth and are like, hey, wait, who gets her? Who gets to have her? I'm going to take her. No, I'm going to take her. No, I'm going to take her. They're like, ha, 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 mockery. He's like, no, that's a false scenario. It can't even occur because it's a different age altogether into which we resurrect. Interesting note there, the second piece about how he hammers them down on the false scenario that undercuts her entire argument is the idea and the purpose of marriage. It's not that marriage in this age necessarily is solely for the purpose of procreating. But here, Jesus accentuates that as the critical piece of marriage in this age. Notice how he speaks of marriage. Because he says, well, then who would she belong to in the age of the resurrection? Number one, you don't understand the two age. There's two ages, this and the one to come. And the one to come is different. How? Look at verse 36. No one can die anymore. That's different than this age. The guys died, all seven of them, and the woman in the end. In the age that is to come, no one dies anymore. Well, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's why there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Because no one is dying. Therefore, there is no need to procreate. So the picture of marriage is coming to an end in the age that is to come. Now, again, we can think about that also on theological grounds when we move to Paul. Paul gives us a great example in Ephesians 5 of the purpose of marriage in this age as well, as that your marriage, for better and for worse at times, is an analogy of Christ and the church. You know, it's a great way to remind yourselves with your kids that our house is a little church. That, 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 that we're there, we're, our home is a little church. And, and it's an analogy to God's big church. Dad should be speaking truth at home and leading at home, just as pastor does. And we ought to sing together and lift praise together. We ought to pray together. Our house is a little church, for better or for worse, but certainly not the pure church that is to come. But it is an analogy by grace of the church in this age. So that, too, goes away because why? The true church is gathered at once in the presence of God. That marriage analogy is not functioning the same in the age that is to come as it does in this age. The analogies and the shadows have passed away. God is our light. Christ is our brother in the spirit uniting us in perfect harmony in the age that is to come. I don't know about you, but I, I think relationally it's really hard to think about heaven and, and the next dimension. 
what exactly are the relationships that you carry in time? How do they translate in the age that is to come? We know here very clearly the experience isn't one for one. It's not. It's different. How will you know? Who will you know? How all of that occurs is hard to wrap our mind around. Um, so it's hard to speak to. But it seems here that our marriage primarily, all of us in union, will be a union and, and primacy of marriage to God, who is our Father, Christ, who is our eldest brother, and the Spirit of God who will unite us in perfect harmony. So you have the ages wrong. You have marriage, therefore, wrong, because you don't understand the age to come. Nobody dies anymore. The, the, the need to procreate and fill the earth with the glory of God has come to a conclusion. He continues, verse 36, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. They're being sons of the resurrection. But he doesn't stop there at their faux scenario. He's now undercut it by two things. Number one, you don't get the age dynamics. There's two ages. You don't just come right back to the life that you had in the resurrection. Don't mock me. You're ignorant over the idea of the resurrection. And the other aspect of marriage is faux because there is no giving in marriage and the need to have children and continue to perpetuate your inheritance in the age that is to come. But I want to touch on two more things. Now I've dismantled your fake scenario. I want to show you that you're actually a bad reader of Moses too because it's not just a theory or an idea or a philosophy of resurrection. It's a biblical doctrine. No, you're making that up. The rabbis are expanding upon the doctrine. No, okay, fine. No, Moses told us. Great, let's go to Moses then. So he goes right to the heart of their own work of being exegetes. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised. Let, let, let me say one more thing, guys. But that the dead are raised, it, it's not something new. Notice the language in verse 37. Even Moses. Right? Look at how the conversation started in verse 27. They don't believe in the resurrection. Well, why not? And they asked him the question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us versus you. And he says, no, but that the dead are raised. Forget about your fake scenario about seven guys who died and then they got remarried. Forget about it. The fact that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. How so? Carefully read the text. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you see? He's hammering on it. He, it's not that he was the God. That, that's what he's getting. Moses in declaring the glory of God, people, is not saying, you remember, he used to be the God of Abraham. This is what Jesus is getting at. Moses declares he is the God of Abraham. No, 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 we, we, we read that right. We read that right. No, no, you didn't. No, no, you didn't. He even says, well, where should we go to learn that? In the passage about the bush. You know that, yes? Then look carefully. He calls the Lord the God of Abraham. 
The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not that he once was, but that he is. Verse 38, now he is not. This is why Moses said it this way. Because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. He is the giver of life. Read the passage more carefully next time before you make a mockery of resurrection. So the doctrine of resurrection is nothing new. When we, we get to Revelation 20, we see that those, if you, if you have loved ones who have died in, in this age, so far, in this age, where, where are they at? What has occurred to them? Those who have professed and confessed Christ, they have been raised in his presence. Revelation 20, John sees disembodied spirits. And he says, blessed are they, for they shared in the first resurrection. They, they, they didn't disintegrate. They didn't cease to have a self-reflexive consciousness. They are there in the age that is to come. They have been raised, John says. I saw the disembodied souls. I saw them there, awaiting for the physical bodily resurrection. But they're alive now. What would you call that? The first resurrection. How many resurrections are there? Two. When all will be. So how long does the resurrection reach back to? Well, well, Moses said it in the passage about the bush. Abraham was raised in the first resurrection. But notice the shifting of alliance in verse 39. Then some of the scribes, so they were, they were listening in on the discussion. And some of the scribes, so we're shifting a little bit, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. You see, they're opportunists. They're in on the resurrection. So they were glad to hear him speak to the Sadducees this way. They're like, you know what? We didn't like what you're saying to us a few minutes ago, but this time I think you nailed it. Um, you have spoken real well. And notice he's not like, you know what? These are true believers. Let's embrace. He's like, you're fair weather fans at best. You're opportunists. Which in many ways makes you even You see, they, they see the same thing. They're watching the same dialogue, and they're like, power scales tilted. Let's go on this side now. Look at how he strips them bare. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared him ask, ask him any questions. The Sadducees, are, they, they, they've been rendered uh, undone. But the scribes, verse 41, but he said to them, the crowd. Now Jesus returns to the crowd. He said to them, how can they, scribes? You see, they thought they were going to come over and be like, hey, you did a real good job. Maybe we can work things out. He'll have none of it. They're pretentious. They're liars. They're frauds. He says to the crowd, how can the scribes, they, say that Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Lord to Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord, the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? You see, if the Sadducees missed the resurrection, the scribes missed the incarnation. Who is Jesus? The son of David. How can he be his son and be his Lord? Because he is God in the flesh. These guys can't read Psalm 110 very well. These guys missed the burning bush. What should we do then? Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of these people. Look at the last little laundry list of why you have to be wary of false teaching. Because it has disastrous and deadly little tentacles that go out from it. The center, the nucleus, might be the false teaching. But it's the implications that go out that begin to destroy people that makes the false teaching so deadly. They don't get Psalm 110. Beware of them. You're like, ooh, man, that's really harsh. Psalm 110, we might not have gotten it exactly right either. No, 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 no. It's a characteristic of who these people are. They're false teachers. And what they do with their false teaching is destroy lives. And they don't care. This is how it concludes. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Why? They like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces. And the best seats in the synagogues, they love this. And the places of honor at the feasts. They love all this glitz and glamour. Beware of them. Because from that glit and from that glamour, from those greetings and from those robes, they devour widows' houses. That's a reference to taking over estates. Someone died. I'll tell you how you can spend your money. We'll take it. We'll take over. We'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. And she's robbed blind. And they do it because they hold power by their false teaching. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, you know, what Jesus said earlier, they're crafty. They pretended, verse 20, to be sincere. They do it every day. And people's lives are ruined because of it. They make long, verbose prayers. Beware of them, mark them, and avoid them. And let me give you this word of, commendation for all the destruction they bring through the power of false teaching they will receive a greater condemnation it will be punished when in the age that is to come remember all will be raised and all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ.
receiving in their life the blessed life that is to come or receiving just punishment for a faith that was neglected. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the doctrine of the resurrection. We thank you for your clear teaching on it from cover to cover in our Bible. We pray that you'd give us wisdom in handling your word, that we would not be pretentious, that we also would be as hardworking and as honest as we can be, as forthright as possible, that we would not 